yeah, his most noteworthy 20th century event of his medical career happens to him and nobody knows what it is. The ulcer thing. It was the pancreas, wasn't it? I don't know. Oh, wait, I think it was both. Poor Dr. Fleischman. I have Leonard, you have Maurice. And Dr. Fleischman wants to talk shop. Who knows what he's talking about? Nobody. So Dr. Joel Fleischman has just achieved a milestone in his medical career, or at least uh, he thinks so, but he doesn't really have anyone he can share it with, as Ed and Maggie are talking about in this scene. Uh, there's It's doctor talk. There's no one that can really relate to this. And Charles, I was thinking, you know, is there any is there anything for you, you maybe feel similar to Joel, like, uh, I've definitely been in situations where, you know, there's something that I want to talk about, but it's kind of not the right crowd. Do you have, uh, anything like that? I mean, we're, we're not doctors, but, (laughs) uh, yeah, kind of, um, not a lot of people listen to musicals. So I, usually find myself not being able to talk about that often. We, we get to talk about that on the podcast, I think, every once in a while, because there <laughs> yeah. is a lot of musical content, like musicals, in this show, it turns out. Yeah, I could talk about it on here. Or like, I mean, <laughs> you're kind of forced to. Right, like, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, animation is certainly right. one in which mm-hmm. I can really go into. And not a lot of people... Uh, care that much about that or like they, they have like the wherewithal that I find the, the like the trick to these types of things and it's only like a half like a half measure trick mm-hmm. because um it, it's not a full solution but like you gotta turn it into a way in which it affects their lives or at least is like interesting to them yeah. so like let's say like I'm make up an example off the top of my head like let's say we're talking about Oklahoma and we're talking about like um I'm just a girl who can't say no. And then you relate it to some way of like, I don't know, like some sort of like, I'm not saying the song is that, but like some sort of social political climate thing <laughs> and like go off from there. So you're kind of killing two birds with one stone that like you got to get that off your chest and talk about how cool <laughs> Oklahoma, uh, you know, is, yeah. Oklahoma is. And you also got to relate it to something in their lives. But yeah, I find like that's like basically kind of like the uh, best of both worlds things that I can yeah. I can really think of. Uh, what, what about for you? Yeah. Well, I'll say, yeah, I, I like that approach. Got to make it apply to the conversation at hand and make it like interesting to someone. If you want to share it with them, it should interest them, I guess. Um, and Joel kind of, we'll get to it in this episode, but he struggles with that because it's so technical that it really is like kind of hard to make this important to Maggie or to anyone else. But to answer your question, for me, I think one situation that I could think of is uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of the game Dungeons and Dragons. I'm a dungeon master, and I can nerd out about that. Uh, but a lot of my friends, well, some of my a lot of my friends are you know board gaming friends and Dungeons and Dragons friends. But a lot of my friends are like musicians and artists and filmmakers. And not to say that they don't like Dungeons and Dragons, but you know, I don't know them. I don't know them to play the game. I was thinking of one specific instance when I was hanging out with my bandmates uh, at a bar and um, so I overheard someone talking about a campaign, a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. And I started, you know, asking, he's like, wait, are you talking about Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition? Like, you know, just from across the bar. And at that moment I was 
I said to my friends, my bandmates, okay, excuse me, like, uh, screw you guys. I'm going to go sit. And I talked to this guy for a good like half hour or more and was just fascinated with his, you know, experience with Dungeons and Dragons and just meeting someone else in this situation. You don't normally go to bars to talk about Dungeons and Dragons. Not that you can't do that. I think we should (laughs) go to bars and talk about our Dungeons and Dragons games, but it's, it's not something you might expect to typically find there. Right. Like there comes a time in which you just really want to get into into the weeds, into the deeper intricacies that you're going to have to leave behind the compromise because no other way you can get into these issues. If you want to talk about like, all right, well, like I want to talk about the difference between 5E and 3E, uh, you know, and like all the changes that you can do whenever you move your uh, pieces whenever you move your pieces to a certain degree and how that rule changed between the two editions and I'm going to relate that to how it's going to be affecting on certain campaigns maybe like uh, one just drastically changed because of these small little things and it can be like really interesting to the people to the two parties that are involved that's very difficult to relate that to like yeah. a larger scheme of things yeah like I feel that in some ways on like other things which I'll look at something I'll be like oh my god like that that cut is absolutely ridiculous look at how they like Look at how they changed like the animation on the, like the hand right there, and like the very small nuanced thing. And it's like, oh man, like uh, uh, like Ryoma Ibata. What a, like <laughs> Jesus Christ? Like look at the walk that he just did on that animation. Like that's ridiculous. And like, but that's such a small little thing. So yeah, I totally get what you mean on that. Kind of have to have that. Like, and you are in the initiated. Like you have the knowledge to understand the con- Like you can't really engage in that, or it's just not fun for someone else if they have no idea what you're talking about and. You know, it would require so much, yeah, so much catching learned, up to even start the conversation. I've learned not to crowbar <laughs> that yeah. into a conversation because, like, I I don't I'm not trying to brag, but like, I think I have like a decent way of speaking, <laughs> and so like I can usually crowbar stuff into a conversation if I need to. Yeah, like I can like find like the strands of the thread <laughs> and like wind them over there. But like, it's still like the older I get, the more I'm just like, ah, whatever, man. We're all just uh, like, you know, your your time is valuable, and maybe they just don't. They honest to God don't want to hear you talk about this. So like, just don't. Just like talk about the weather. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you know, find some common ground and like don't try to like you know bend it towards your towards your way. But anyway, what are we talking about here, Lee? We are talking about um, Northern Exposure. This is the Northern Overexposure podcast. So we talk about the TV series, Northern Exposure. We overanalyze it. We go episode by episode. We're in season five now. And a couple interesting things or a couple uh, characteristics of our podcast is my name is Lee and I'm a big fan of this TV series. I've been watching it for over a decade, I guess, is when I first saw it uh, over a decade ago. And, and Charles, uh, you are new to the show, but I mean, obviously we're in season five, but you've seen um, every episode for the first time. So you sort of have this new perspective. That's also another part of the podcast is we like to invite on a guest at the end of each episode, someone who has never seen the show at all. So even further removed than you, Charles, like usually we try to find someone who has never seen an episode or has maybe never even heard of this show and expand the reach of this show to a new audience, one friend at a time. Uh, there is a trick with this with this TV series. Uh, it, it may have been very 
popular when it was airing broadcasting back in the 90s. Today, it is extremely hard. I guess I shouldn't say extremely, but it's it's very limited in the way you can watch it. It's never been available for streaming. You got to get some DVDs and, and pop out your DVD player. Or if you're lucky and live in a foreign country or have a region-free Blu-ray player, maybe you can go that route. They've made some, uh, some Blu-rays, but no like official releases, uh, Blu-ray releases in America, still no streaming. So hopefully we've grown the audience of this show just by inviting on, you know, guests to watch the show. I think a couple of our guests actually, Charles, have like followed through and, and watched, you know, season one, maybe season two. But I don't know if, um, I feel like most of them have just watched one episode in and out. Um, or, you know, maybe expressed an interest to watch the show, but just haven't gotten their hands on it. I guess like you have to buy like a whole DVD set or maybe get lucky and find it at the library. I don't know. Yeah, I think like the barrier to entry is really high <laughs> yeah. in Northern Exposure. So that's what's preventing a lot of people from getting into it. And that's also what's preventing not just them, but for like everybody to get into this and, uh, you know, understand what we're trying to say, which is why like our built in audience, it's like <laughs> yeah. super niche. So if you're, yeah, if you are listening, you probably uh, are a fan of the show, have already seen it or are watching it for the first time. Uh, I guess, yeah, I mean, this is part of the problem of being a fan of this show. Not many people have access to watch it. So if you love the show, uh, please recommend our podcast. But obviously, like, please just show the, this show, Northern Exposure, to other people. Uh, that's, that's one way of, um, I guess, expanding the audience here. But anyway, Charles, today we're going to be talking about season five now, the season five, episode 19, The Gift of the Maggie. And before we even dive in, like, what do you think about that title? Uh, it's definitely off of The Gift of the Magi. Yeah. Magi? I think I call it, I say Magi. Yeah. I think I, I say Magi as well. Okay. So I think that one makes more of a sense that, uh, that short story right there. Um, are you familiar with that short story? Yes. I mean, I've, uh, I think I know how it works, but I would also say, I don't think that's, I don't think like the, the, the format or the structure or the mechanics, or I just, I don't think the story, the gift of the Magi is really at, at all similar to this episode. Am I wrong? Uh, it's a little bit similar. Okay. So like, let me read out the yeah. Wikipedia entry. <laughs> Perfect. It's very short of like the because it's a short story and yeah. like they, you know they did a summarized version of a short story. So story on time. Christmas Eve, Della Young discovers that she only has a buck eighty seven, equivalent to fifty six dollars in two thousand twenty one, to buy a present for her husband Jim. She visits the nearby shop of a hairdresser, Madame Safrani, who buys Della's long hair for twenty dollars, about six hundred dollars in two thousand twenty one. Della then uses the money to buy a platinum pocket watch chain for Jim. When Jim comes home from work that evening, Della admits to him that she sold her hair to buy him the chain. Jim gives Della her present, a set of ornamental combs, which she will be unable to use until her hair grows back out. Della gives Jim the watch chain, and he tells her that he sold the watch to buy the combs. While the gifts that Jim and Della gave each other cannot be used, they know how far they went to show each other their love and how invaluable their love truly is. The story ends with the narrator comparing the sacrificial gifts of love with those of the biblical magi. Yeah. So, I mean, they're definitely, I probably went a little too far to say that they're not at all similar, the story and the episode. There's definitely, you know, there's, there's Maggie, there's gifts, um, there's exchanges. Uh, I, I think I was just like more directly like, you know, there's no, 
sort of like, I like the element of the, the original story, the gift of the Magi, where, you know, we sacrifice something to give a gift and the gift that we receive is now useless because what we have sacrificed. But in the end, it's sort of, uh, it's sad that these gifts are kind of meaningless in the end, but I think the fact of giving a gift shows the care and, and maybe that's, uh, the bottom at the bottom line for that story you know it's not the gift that counts it's uh the thought maybe i don't know right i think that's what they're trying to get at and i, I think it was just too good of a pun to make yeah. so they were just like all right <laughs> that's that's, just... that's why they chose this title yeah right great a great pun so who were the writer and the director of this episode yeah okay so the credits here we've got um directed by patrick mckee who, uh, he directs one more episode of Northern Exposure, I think in season six, predominantly a production manager and assistant director for Northern Exposure. I think he did something like 30 episodes, maybe, uh, maybe more. This is just IMDB. So like, um, I, I think we talked about at least with like some of the, like, I think with Ann Gordon, the animal trainer, like, mm -hmm. you know, on, on IMDb, some of her credits are listed, but not all of them, you know, maybe even for Northern Exposure 2, it like only lists on certain episodes, but she was pretty much on almost every episode, any episode that had an animal, I would assume. Uh, but okay. So Patrick McKee, yeah, he is continually, I think, working as this production manager, assistant, uh, director role, uh, though I don't think he's really directed, according to IMDb, just um, just these two episodes of Northern Exposure and like an episode of Nip Tuck or something like that. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. um, Patrick McKee, cool, finally stepping uh, in the director's seat or taking the director's seat for this episode. The writers, Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green, who have written all over this show, some of the highlights that I've chosen, uh, the episodes... Things Become Extinct, Gross Point 48230, The Big Feast, and a lot of episodes this season. Uh, these are these are writers that will go on to write for The Sopranos with David Chase later. Um, and finally, the air date, March 28th, 1994. Uh, so jumping right into like the first scene of the episode, we've got Maurice Minifield sort of lounging. Um, he's got a, his leg in a cast. And remember, we kind of talked about this, I think, last episode, how the actual actor did injure themselves, I think injured their leg and, you know, was absent from a few episodes of Northern Exposure. Though we we had Maurice in last episode. Did he have a cast on or could we even tell? I think he's just... No, he didn't have a cast on last episode. Did we see him like walking about? I can't remember. Well, we would have seen him with the crutches. Right. He would have at least had the crutches nearby. I think I'm trying to remember what he did in the last episode and maybe it was just like town hall meeting stuff. I'm trying to mm -hmm. remember. Yeah. He was standing on that town hall. Yeah. Hmm. Well, anyway, he's got a cast now. Um, so I always wonder these things like, you know, are these episodes shot out of order and released in certain ways? Maybe they like shoot a few episodes in one like sort of uh, sequence and, you know, depending on the way they want to release them or maybe troubles with uh, editing or scheduling. I don't know. I want to say they definitely shoot the episodes out of order. Yeah. Because it's got to be it. Because, yeah, because we've seen episodes with Chris having like different hairstyles. Right. And just from like a logistical. Well, they release episodes. I think they release episodes out of order. Maybe they shoot them in a certain order. I don't know. 
I think it's a logistical thing. Like yeah. if it's raining at a particular scene, like a, you know, an area that they mm-hmm. need to be in or some sort of thing, like they can't get an actor at this particular time, so like they'll just shoot out of order. Now, I don't yeah, think they shoot true. scenes out of order of different episodes. It's not like they go like, all right, we're shooting like part of episode 17 today. Right. And then later on, we're going to shoot a part of scene of like an episode 18. It's like, I think they like, it's in a vacuum. They, they shoot all the scenes, you know, in a time block period. But I think it, it skips out of order, in my opinion. Like I know in like, me and you have both seen it, like in the West Wing, um, mm-hmm. for the introduction of Joshua Molina's character, Will Bailey, they had his first scene in the interview scene where he's talking to all of the journalists. Yeah. Um, that's his very first scene in which he was filming, but that is not the first scene that he appears in. That's in the middle of the episode. Hmm. So they definitely go back and forth between there. So I imagine like most television productions are kind of similar in that regard. Yeah, I think you're right. Like they have a production of an episode that they're working on. Scheduling conflicts may postpone the release of an episode. So, you know... That could explain why some episodes come out of order when we're when they're broadcast. But regardless, Maurice here is, you know, he's still here. He's back. Uh, but now he has his cast um, on his leg. He's listening to like some classical music, like I think it's Bach. And uh, he's having himself a little tea party. I think he's like reading the newspaper, drinking a tea from a teacup. And then all of a sudden, a huge boom, like an explosion. And this uh, sort of like computer voice coming from like an intercom alerts him that there's a fire and smoke in zone two. I mean, this is his house, but I guess like he's, you know, he's been portrayed as like a very rich person. And so he probably has some wilds like security system set up uh, for this sort of like fire alarm system. And um, the scene ends with Maurice, like he's outside of his house now, sort of watching his his house from the outside. He's in the snow, kind of, you know, like very like fire drill style, waiting for um, the, I guess the fire, the Sicily Fire Department to arrive. Right. I, I think this episode has a lot of symbolism mm. on it, um, particularly color symbolism, but also some floral symbolism as well. Mm-hmm. But one of the main things that we're going to see in this episode is the use of the color yellow. Yeah. And yellow and gold are both very, very similar in what they portray and what they mean. So at the beginning of the shot, Maurice is surrounded by a lot of gold. There's gold lighting. There's gold frills. The gold lighting casts everything in like a golden shade right there. Uh, it's very opulent. We can see that Maurice is surrounded by, uh, well, richness. We can see yeah. that like he's a very well-off man right here. And then, like you said, he's cast off into yeah, the outside. It's very white. It, they're obviously in the middle of winter. So you can see a little bit of a juxtaposition. But I think the important thing to note is that he begins being surrounded by gold. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because there's definitely... Yeah, he's he's vulnerable now in the snow, and then there's like the I think um, debts and money and owing people, having things, getting getting them stripped away from you. That's all a big part of Maurice's plotline, and I think that color that you're pointing out can can help to like symbolize and um, supplement the meaning there with some color symbolism. Uh, so the next morning, um, I guess this is after the opening title sequence the next morning, like there's the Sicily fire department is there assessing the damage. Turns out there was like, um, I think it's like a furnace filter, Mm -hmm. uh, clogged the intake. Like so Walt is walking out of, um, 
Maurice's house. Walt is, I guess, a, a volunteer firefighter. And um, he's he says, we found the culprit. This furnace filter clogged the intake. I guess it, it caused some combustion, some fire, explosion even. Oh, it's funny. He says, it clogged the intake. We even sent out flyers. Like, you know, you're supposed to change these filters. Like, didn't you get the flyer, uh, Maurice? Right. Assuming the, uh, the local fire department was sending out flyers. I think it's a fun scene to begin with because uh, it, it's a tracking shot. Yeah, it's a very cool, um, very cool movement here. Yeah, so it's like when the camera is just moving along to the side. And uh, they do this a lot in like war movies to show off like <laughs> the damages in a war. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going across the screen and you're seeing like all these piles of dead bodies and fires and all that. And <laughs> this particular instance are showing like the the debris of uh, Marisa's home. It's showing like all these workers that are going in and out, retrieving rugs and all of these things. Um, speaking of rugs, that is actually what Hauling is getting out. It's gotten this really fancy rug that he has to get out and Maurice is saying like, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. You got to you got to take care of it. Like, Ed, come over here and help him on that. And in that same scene, he's talking about like all these other valuables, like mm-hmm. the Queen Anne's, Churchill Ottomans. Um, it's all to pile on, like I said previously, like all of these very material rich things that he values were inside that house and he wants to go out and go retrieve them. But now Ed runs out and tells him, it's like, hey, your greenhouse is actually damaged. Like in the, the winter that we're in going to go kill them. So they got to go rush off and go attend to that. Yeah. So are you pointing out it's like, you know, I I noticed this too, like uh, Maurice is like ordering everyone else to protect these valuables when he hears about the greenhouse is actually when he himself is like, okay, screw this, like throw these crutches. I'm running to the greenhouse. This Mm -hmm. is maybe, it's either maybe more valuable to him or it's something that he himself you know, is only in charge. He's he's like the person in charge of this to control this, like no one else. He doesn't want to, you know, let Ed or Holland go grab these um, valuable flowers or protect them. He's like, I need to see to this that these are okay. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like he's prioritizing these flowers more than the other objectively richer Objects. Yeah, more more value perhaps in that rug, but to him, these orchids, I, who knows, these orchids could be quite valuable. We, we learned that one of them is a prize-winning flower, but um, I thought it was funny, Ed, when he's coming to warn Maurice about the greenhouse, he calls it the flower house, and uh, Maurice corrects him, but the greenhouse, um, the windows are busted, as you said, and there are orchids on there, they're going to die from this cold climate, so they have to, to hurry and rush. Yeah, right off the bat, we, he tells us that it's orchids, and mm-hmm. orchids are like super simple to solve because in Victorian flower language, orchids symbolize luxury. Welcome to the flower shop, no. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I've always thought of orchids as very exotic and very fragile, but I think that also that also plays as well. Um, the, the expense, the luxuriousness of owning something like this, you know, you, you have to be wealthy, I think, to have this, um, to have this collection, especially in the nineties, I guess. Right. And like the flowers, obviously subtext for Maurice himself. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to our B plot or our second plot, which is going to be Joel. Uh, Joel is tending to a patient that I don't think we've ever been introduced to them. Yeah. These are new people, right? Maybe we've seen her before. I'm not sure, but uh, we get a name to a face here. He calls her Elaine, which I remember that is his um, his ex fiance's name. Uh, but he's making a house call, as you said. 
for this patient. She has some stomach issues, uh, ulcers, it turns out, have returned despite medication, and she has diarrhea. And Joel, you know, sort of as like a eureka moment, uh, he's like, okay, recurring ulcers despite treatment, diarrhea. I think I have an idea of what could be happening. We're going to have to run some blood tests, blah, 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 blah. But we know this is this is sort of our uh, beginning to a plot line that is, um, to me at first, I thought it was just going to be like sort of a, like a Sherlock Holmes, like a house mystery thing where he's like trying a bunch of things and trying to figure out what it is. But um, he has a hunch and he's, uh, as we played in that earlier soundbite, like he has a hunch. He's pretty immediately um, right about his hunch and he wants to nerd out about that. Um, but he, do, he doesn't really find anyone to, to nerd out. We'll, we'll get into that as we go down this storyline. But that's sort of our setup of, of where we're going with Joel here. Yeah, I think it's kind of neat that like doctors are really great at playing modern day detectives because yeah. they narrow down from a bunch of symptoms and clues. And then they try to like see what it can and can't be and then play off of there. Uh, a lot of the times you might. Like if you've ever been to a doctor's office, you might see a doctor be typing stuff into like a database or even Google itself. And I know a lot of people freak out and they're like, what the hell, man? Like I can do that. Like that's so stupid. It's like, no, 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 no. Like they went to medical school so that they can filter out which thing it's easier. They're not like a database. Yeah. Like they don't have like an extreme wealth of knowledge just stored up in their brain. <laughs> they know how to utilize it. So like certain pieces of information, they get these clues and then they can like roll it out really easily from there. Yeah, I think what's going on in this plot line or what I picked up is like doctors have very many ways of diagnosing or like trying to figure out what the ailment might be. And uh, a lot of those, like how how you figure this out is um, very specific and it can like lead to one thing and be inconclusive somewhere else. So picking the right tools to diagnose something is a is sort of this clever, you know, problem solving um, challenge that doctors have to face, and so if they can get it, I think um, one of our past guests, Taylor, in season two, was talking about how he really loved how Joel sort of diagnosed um, this allergy that um, Maurice had, or this sleep apnea that he had. Uh, without actually using, you know, any sort of uh, fancy schmancy, I, I guess like, you know, it, not not a lot of technology in his doctor's office. He had to like literally go over to Maurice's house and do a sleep study and just like kind of work with his intuition more than any like tools, diagnostic tools, just like his knowledge. And I think that's what's happening here too. It's like, he's got a memory of uh, some disease or disorder or ailment. And it's like, wait, this is kind of checking the boxes. He didn't really have to like run a bunch of tests. He's kind of plugging it in, in his, in his brain palace there, like figuring <laughs> out what this, uh, what this could be. Yeah. I think that's such a good trait for, or like not even good. I think it's like the needed trait for doctors, mm -hmm. but sadly you don't always see that. That's one of my greatest fears is going to a doctor's <laughs> office and I like I have some sort of like problem. Let's say it's like a stomach pain. And he like looks over and he rules it as like some common thing. Mm -hmm. Uh and he's like, oh, you just have like X. And then prescribes me some sort of medication and I take the medication, but it doesn't cure it. But then you go back and the doctor is still isn't going to help you. He's just like, no, mm. you just have X. Yeah, it's inside your brain, man. And it's like, you know, it's fine. And I like I'm sure it doesn't happen often. 
because you have to go through so much training to become a doctor, but like it has happened before. Yeah. Where like doctors are just like negligent and they're not like they're not fulfilling their civic duty toward their patient. But they're kind of blowing them off. And then like, you know, the symptoms get worse and the patient starts getting yeah, and the patient starts uh, declining and that's just one of my fears is right. that like, you know, what if Joel didn't realize that it was, uh, what is it, ZG, ZG syndrome? Uh, Z, Z-E. Z-E, uh, Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. Mm-hmm. Like, he, because he does say that like, oh, I gave her this one thing, but then suddenly it got worse. But instead of like writing it off, he actually paid attention and said like, wait a second, like, no, there's like these clues that are happening right here that I didn't notice yeah. before. I'm going to take that into account and be like, holy crap, it's this like super rare thing. And that's what's causing it. And like my fear is that like the, the doctor <laughs> I go to wouldn't realize that and they would just think that it was just one thing and just keep drilling down on that. Yeah. It's like, oh, this didn't get any better. Like, or it came back. Let's just like give you a little more of the same medicine or something like that. Which I mean, like, I think for... You know, it's this, this, uh, in Joel's case, this is super rare, the ZE, Zollinger Ellison. So cast a wide net and like, if that doesn't work, um, you know, or not even if that doesn't work, like cast a wide net, but then, you know, look for any weird outlying symptoms or things that might suggest something. But obviously, you know, there's no reason to, uh, think that it's ZE from the get go. And I think Joel, even in this very first scene is like, I have a hunch but I don't want to say anything yet. Um, I think I may be able to help you if this is more than, you know, just like what we've been treating. We can help you out, but let me run some tests and make sure this is the right way to treat it. So yeah, Joel, I, I think what we're getting at is being a very, very good doctor right now. Um, so <laughs> hopefully, Charles, hopefully you never get a, a doctor unlike Joel. Right. <laughs> and now we go to our final plot line, a C plot, which okay. is involving Chris and a deer. Mm. So we get with like this, uh, you know, we see Chris in the outdoor. It's very majestic. And he's got his rifle out and he's about to shoot the deer. But then something ticks inside his brain where it stops him from going through. He just puts down his rifle. Uh, I got to say, like, I don't know what's unique about this shot, but I do like how Chris is holding that rifle. Mm. And, you know, we get a shot of him with, like, he's centered, but, like, you can see the rifle, how long it is. Yeah. Was shooting out. Is there something unique about that shot, or is that just... Let me take another uh, look, yeah. Me not realizing something. Let me take another look at that. While I'm loading that up, yeah, I, I do. I also, it's such a simple scene that I really like. Uh, but because, you know, there's not really much dialogue. I think Chris is maybe talking to himself as he's like, ah, I can't do it or something like that. I, I don't remember. He might be uh, kind of breathing. But I like how when the, it's like a deer. Is this, what's the difference between a deer and an elk? Okay. So all elk are deer, but not all deer are elk. Mm. Um, So like the term deer encompasses a broad meaning, but in the context of conversation concerning elk and deer, it stands to mean any deer that is not an elk. That is an important distinction to make because deer and elk both belong to the same family, cervidae, which includes other hoofed ruminants such as moose, muntjac, and reindeer. Uh, The biggest thing that I would say is the size. Okay. An elk can go from three to five feet tall. Deers go two to four foot tall. Not a lot of difference right there. But an elk can weigh 375 to 1,100 pounds. A deer only goes to 100 to 400 pounds. 
So if you see like a massive thing, it's like, that's an elk. Like cannot be a deer. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if we could call this an elk. I'll just call it a deer anyway. Cause that's what, um, that's what they call it throughout this whole episode. All right. I've, I do have the shot. I'm looking at it. I'm trying to see. It doesn't seem like it's necessarily like a very wide lens or a very telephoto lens either. So it seems kind of... Uh, I'm almost positive it's just the leading lines of the rifle. Yeah, I think so. Like it draws your eyes from left to right, which is really yes. neat. Def- oh, yeah, definitely so. He's facing um, right to left and like the the gun, like draw. you know, he's looking down the barrel, so... Um, but yeah, he can't do it. As you said, he puts the gun down. Uh, I think it's cool that the deer, it almost looks like the deer, cause we get shots back and forth between the deer and Chris. It looks like the deer kind of like looks over to Chris, like makes eye contact and Chris is like, oh, I can't do it. But I don't think that's the reason why there's, um, I don't know if, are we ever really given a reason why Chris can't do it? Oh, I think we're going to have to uh, speculate on yeah. that at the end of the episode. Yeah. But one thing that occurs to me is that, oh, wait, never mind. Hang on. Sorry. I was watching a scene that, like in real time while talking to you. Okay. And I thought they might have shot the deer footage by itself and then the Chris footage by itself, but they're together. There's they're a two actually, shot. Where yeah, there's a two shot where they're both together on the same yeah. frame. I was like, oh, okay, there we go. I mean, I'm sure like when they were shooting the elk, Chris was probably like not standing there. He was probably like sitting in a chair and Ann Gordon was probably like directing the elk off screen or something. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah. Okay. So we've got our three branches to this episode. Um, I wonder where we should start. I would say maybe Maurice, maybe Joel. What are you feeling? Sure. Let's go with Maurice. All right. So we had already started with Maurice who, you know, is that first opening gambit of the episode, but now when we next see Maurice after, you know, he learns that the greenhouse has taken on some damage, we're with Maurice in his greenhouse and he's got all these orchids. I initially thought, okay, all these orchids are dead. I think they're just sort of like wilting and, um, you know, they the episode kind of wants you to understand that like, you know, these are on the brink of death and they need to be saved. They need to be... Um, kept alive. I've, have you ever owned an orchid, Charles? I never have. Uh, my mother is growing some in the backyard. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know that. In her backyard, there's like a wide assortment of plants, and I know nice. orchids are one of them. Cool. I've always understood them to be like impossible to take care of, but I'm sure, you know, your mom is, you know, doing it. So like, uh, I, I just... I guess you have to mist them, which I think we see in this scene, like Maurice tells Holling, you can't water it like a tomato plant. You have to mist it. Yeah, that's a huge subtext right there. Mm -hmm. That's like, yeah. So the full quote is saying, you don't pour water on it like it's some tomato plant. You got to replicate its environment. You Mm -hmm. damp it down with a fine spray. Orchids are very particular. Uh, That is subtext for Maurice himself. You've got to replicate its environment. He wants to be in his fancy house with all of the gold assortments that are next to him. And he's not comfortable being in Holling and Shelley's place, which is very down to earth. It's homely. It's bare bones. It's just, you know, it's just what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I think there's a lot of that uh, when we get to talking with the orchids. And I think even as we get maybe towards the climax of this plot line, you know, it's all kind of subtextual through through these... Um, talking through these plants in a way uh, to get a point across. 
But um, just to really give the rest of the context in this scene, Maurice has been growing these orchids uh, for a while. He even has an orchid named after himself, a strain called, let's see, Cymbidium Maurice Minifildianum. So literally named uh, an orchid after himself. And it's actually one that won uh, an award. It's a prize winning orchid. It won the silver Banksian medal, I think is what it is, at the Royal Horticultural Society, which is a real thing. But now it turns out that this, um, I swear, I thought all these orchids were dead. They don't look very good, but he's <laughs> kind of keeping them alive, I think, as we're led to believe through this episode. Yeah, they're being, uh, I, I think they're like still barely kept alive, as we're going to see at the end. Yeah, which is good news, I guess. Uh, hard to believe, but somehow he, he pulls it together. Uh, the last little thing about this scene is, um, so, so Hollings here patching up the greenhouse to try to make it more insulated to fix whatever problems we had and keep these orchids alive. And I think Ed is off screen also helping. There's a moment when Maurice calls out to Ed and Ed responds, but it really doesn't sound, it just sound here. I'm going to play the sound bite. It sounds really, really weird. Hey, Ed. Ed, get that generator working. We need BTUs in here, pronto. This one seems a bit dry, Maurice. I don't know if you can hear when Ed says, yeah. Yeah. But it's like, I don't know. The first time I heard it, I was like, who is that? And I, you know, obviously I clipped out the soundbite, so I've heard it a couple times. I can sort of believe that this is Ed, like Darren Burroughs, like screaming, yeah. But um, he did it in such a funny way. If it is, if it is actually the actor. Such a weird, <laughs> such a weird reply. Yeah. Uh, the scene ends with Holling inviting Maurice to stay uh, a couple nights with them because Maurice's original plan was to be in the radio station at K-Bear. He's going to sleep in the office. But Holling says, like, oh, no, like I can't do that. Like, you got to you got to come in and you got to understand that I'm going to let you stay at my place because if I didn't allow that then that would just mean I'm a bad friend yeah actually Ed also like you know insists that uh Maurice stay stay with stay with him like uh, Ed's like I'll sleep on the floor you can take the the bed and hauling you know says we got the sofa bed so it's nice to see that they're like you know they, they will not accept Maurice uh going to stay at K-Bear and um well, hey, it's settled. Maurice is going to go stay with Holling and Shelley. And uh, I think the next scene we get is basically like Shelley and Holling are super excited at having Maurice staying over, like sort of like sleepover. They are almost insufferable in the way that they're like, you know, they're like, oh, here, Maurice, like, let me get your bed. Why don't you like plop down on this? Here are like some very special pillow tops that, you know, we love, but we clean them for you. We want you to use them. They they even set up like a little bed tray with some warm milk and like peanut butter and graham crackers. And um, yeah, I mean, this seems like a it would be a good time, but also, I don't know, if I were in Maurice's situation, I'd be pretty hyped to like, you know, have a, a fun sleepover with these characters. But also I think they're like going a little over the top at the end there. It's kind of like they're just watching you. I don't know. It's like they're a little too much in your business in a way. Yeah, you can see the visualization of this idea with the tray that they put on right. Maurice. So this little breakfast tray that has like milk and um, uh, treat center on it, it uh, goes around his body. So it literally 
yeah, suffocates and encloses him, just like <laughs> Shelley and and Hollings, uh, you know, devotional care. Yeah. There's this theme. I don't know if it's necessarily like a theme or like a lesson of this episode, but there's this idea that is running throughout, I want to say for Maurice and definitely for Joel's, maybe even for Chris's plot line um, throughout this episode that I want to touch on as we get closer. But um, I, I can see it sort of manifesting in this scene where like in one way, maybe Maurice feels like, um, you know, I, I like what you said, how he's sort of like trapped physically with this bed table. So Maurice is like sort of feels like trapped in this environment that's sort of um, perhaps like a manufactured way of like making Maurice feel comfortable where for him, his, his comfort is, I guess, in the things that we saw in the beginning of the episode. I'm not saying that he's not comfortable now, but you know, it's a little odd for him, I guess. It's not something he's adjusting well to. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily like the theme of this plot line, but it's something that I think permeates into other plot lines, which I think I'll, I'll bring up later as we get there. Right. I, I think that, I think what you're saying definitely spreads to the other plot lines mm -hmm. as well. But okay. yeah, uh, moving forward into Maurice's plotline, we can see him checking up on his house. It's uh, we didn't mention this, but oh, yeah. he, the reason he can't be there is because of asbestos. Right. Um, there's a lot of asbestos in there, so he obviously couldn't live back in his house. And he's got these decontamination people coming in to check it out so that they can take care of it. I want to say his name is D.W. Stevens. P.W. P.W. Yeah. P.W. Stevens. <laughs> Uh, they're dressed in white, just like the snow outside. They kind of mm -hmm. camouflage really well with it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there is some sort of symbolic reasoning behind it with the white of their outfit and the white of the snow. But, you know, there's a lot to reach for on here you know, on these particular things. Mm -hmm. But Maurice himself is dressed in red and he talks to them and says like, well, how long is this going to take this entire operation? And they say like, you know, about a week. Yeah. And for Maurice, he... Uh, he, he's kind of disturbed by this. I'm, I'm assuming because, you know, he doesn't want to stay with Holling for a week just after one night, but, uh, yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna be a while. I think he even suggests like, can't we like just fix like one studio room? Uh, can we do that? But like, it doesn't work like that. Apparently they've got to really clear out the whole thing, uh, before Maurice can go back in though. His, uh, greenhouse seems to be fine. I mean, I guess you don't want to sleep in a greenhouse. That would probably be kind of uh, temperate and um, uncomfortable. But I found that interesting that like, it seems that everything else in his house except the greenhouse is kind of kind of messed up. I'm guessing it's because it has to do with the, um, the whole problem is like the air conditioning units spread the asbestos like all throughout the house and assuming that uh, the, the greenhouse is not attached to this AC. Um, but anyway, so I think the next scene with Maurice, is it back? Yeah. So it's back at Shelly and Holling's house. Uh, Maurice is just uh, sitting there still, still in his cast and now watching baby Miranda crying in her rocker. Uh, I think just, you know, the image and the sound of a baby crying is very uncomfortable. So we get the sense that Maurice is like, okay, I have to sit in this room with this crying baby. Uh, but they're getting dinner ready here. And um, yeah, I guess, Charles, we can kind of lean into the juxtaposition that you were setting up earlier of like the way uh, uh, Maurice kind of lives with 
opulence around him maybe. And this sort of like simple dinner that they're eating. I can't remember. I think it's like pot roast or something like that. Not to say that it's bad or anything or, um, not tasty, but it's just very different style to what Maurice would have had if he was cooking for himself at home tonight. And uh, they sit around the table, they say grace, um, which seems a little out of character, but honestly, I think it kind of fits with Shelly because she's got the whole like Christian tradition thing. Like she, uh, you know, maybe she's not the most religious, but she wants to feel that, um, that security of the tradition maybe. Right. So everything in here is... Everything that Maurice is not. So we right. talked about the baby. He obviously, yeah. <laughs> you know, other than his adult son that he didn't know he fathered, he, he's not familiar with babies. He's not familiar with religion. He's not familiar with talks of buying cheap beef patties. He's not familiar oh, yeah. with all these basic meals that they're having. So he's surrounded by a bunch of alien concepts and objects. So that really it takes him out. It reduces him down to their level. And even more so, like... It creates a an environment for him in which, like, not only is he being pulled down to their level, it feels like when he's pulled down to there, he's got to give back to them as well. Yeah, that is something that I think is going to start uh, rearing its head. And I think it's in the next scene, right? Yeah, it's in the next scene where they have more conversations about food. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's lots of discussions of food in this episode. Yeah. But... They're back at the brick, and Maurice wants to settle the bill that he paid over here with his corned beef sandwich, a cup of chowder, some coffee, and Holling refuses. Not just that, but also payment for, like, lodging and rent. He doesn't want any of the money, and Maurice interprets that as a way of Holling holding this above him, saying, like, mm-hmm. I'm going to weaponize my kindness, my generosity <laughs> towards you, so that you're forever backed into a corner, and I can't say no because socially it's right for me to accept your help especially when you're insisting on it yeah yeah i mean i do think it's i do think um hauling is taking it a little far because maurice is just at the brick now he's trying to like pay for his food at first and mm-hmm. hauling's like no no no, you're our guest so you know the food is on the house i mean yeah, whatever. I mean, like the the dinner that they had last night, of course, Maurice isn't going to pay hauling for like having him over for dinner. But, um, you know, this is a this is a business that is run and operated. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. But but Maurice trying to pay then for the lodging is a little odd. So I can see how they start arguing. And the big point, I think, from this scene, as you already said, Charles, as we're leading into this part of the storyline here is um, that, you know, Maurice feels uncomfortable to be in a debt to Holling, that maybe this is some way, I like how you said it's like Maurice thinks Holling is weaponizing this somehow to use against him, but that'll become, you know, an issue and hopefully they can find a way to resolve it by the end of this this plot line. Uh, I just wanted to also say in this scene, uh, something I learned, uh, a C-note. Have you ever heard that to describe? I'm sure I've heard it to describe money before, but um, I never knew the meaning of C-note. What does it mean? So the Roman numeral C is uh, equal to 100. So oh. C-note, $100. Also, Maurice says like, all right, I've got to get going. I need to go check my email. So they had email. I mean, I guess I knew they had email back in 94, but I mean, I was also, what, three years old. So I wasn't checking my email back then. I remember when we got like AOL for the first time, but 
That was much later or a little later. I think that if this was like a real life situation right here, I can kind of see how troublesome it is to navigate it because you understand that Maurice is a very prideful being. Mm -hmm. And so him accepting the generosity of this puts him into an uncomfortable position in which he is not used to. Whereas in Holling's situation, he naturally wants to give. And yeah. you're insulting him if he don't accept it. But whenever you start categorizing things as a price, like it actually can come down to a quantifiable number, that's where things get really dicey. So it's like a rock and a hard place where like I can kind of see the merits of both sides argument. And I guess I'm like if Maurice was super savvy and I don't blame him for not thinking of this because I definitely wouldn't have th thought of this. You wouldn't have paid back in money. You pay back in the same thing that you are receiving, which are deeds, actions, stuff mm -hmm. like that. So like the thing that Maurice probably could have done been like, all right, well, like I'm definitely going to take y'all out for dinner and pay for it. Or I'm going to help y'all on some other thing right here. Putting down cold hard cash onto the counter designates this transaction. It says that like, yeah. I, I receive X for Y. And that muddies the water. That like that sounds wrong. Right. But if you pay back an action, just like you are receiving action, then that's it feels more comfortable. So like if Maurice wanted to precariously navigate this, that probably would have been the way. But like that's very hard to think of on on the spot. Cause he's gotta realize that like, well, you know, let me take that back. Cause he also <laughs> he doesn't believe that like Holling's doing this out of the kindness of his heart. He's, he thinks he's yeah. doing it to get an advantage over that's him. That's true, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, like just repaying in kind with uh, another just like act of generosity rather than money, you know, then no one has to feel uncomfortable about like, what is the value of this? It's not so much about like what this values, uh, what the value is taken from this. It's that, you know, you want to be nice to your friend, uh, which is sort of reminding me of a gift of the Magi as well. It's like the value of uh, these combs is you know, cutting your hair before you can get the combs, but right. it kind of nullifies it. But, you know, if we don't think in that way, we just think about uh, wanting to, you know, give a gift of love to a friend, I guess. Right. It's like that thing where like, if you help a friend move, like they're yeah. moving apartments or houses, you don't give them money. You give them beer and pizza at yes. the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That's how, that's how this works. All right, well, let's continue down with Maurice here. Let's see. So the next time we see Maurice is actually in Chris's plot line, so we'll skip it over because Maurice does, um, you know, he does have a falling out in that scene with Holling at the brick and ends up not staying any longer with, with um, Holling and Shelly. So he does go and crash at K-Bear late at night. Chris will roll into there later in the episode and disturb him. We'll get to that later. Um, oh, wait, actually... This is important to Maurice's plotline. Mm -hmm. I thought this yeah. was just Chris's plotline. We can talk about Chris's stuff later, but with Maurice, Chris does actually offer some um, interpretation to Maurice's problem here. Yeah, well, like Chris cuts to what we knew. He yes. summarizes it for, which is nice because this is what I like. I, I talked about this a few episodes ago, but like this is where like the plot realizes that like the audience realizes what the deeper meaning is. So it just delivers that and then tries to go further with it, which is always good. Mm -hmm. So. Chris taps upon that core issue of vulnerability and control, how Maurice is not in the driver's seat and that puts him in a difficult situation and he hates 
not feeling like this. He's not in his right environment. Yeah. Just like the orchards aren't in their right environment. So, yeah, you know, he cuts to the chase. He nails it right there. Yeah. He also points out how it's not normal for Maurice to be physically impaired like this, you know, and also homeless. You know, this is very vulnerable feeling for Maurice. Maurice is used to like leading a group of people and pulling his own weight. He doesn't want other people, you know, moving things for him or like taking, for instance, in that first scene, he doesn't want other people to, uh, fix the, fix the greenhouse. He's got his own particular way of taking care of these things, which it's, which is why it's so nice by the end of this episode, when we sort of see that turn around a little bit, but having this scene here, I think is important to, as you said, point out and reaffirm to the audience, like what we may already be understanding so what's what's going on here? And at least we make it clear to the character, Maurice, so that he can now act on this knowledge that he's got it kind of figured out, like what's like why he's uh, why this is all blowing up in his face with him in, in Holling right now, why, why they're um, feuding so much. Mm-hmm. What's really fun is that Maurice is wearing or like not necessarily wearing, but he's got like a red blanket around him. It's not the same thing that he was well, maybe it is. Hmm. Is that the same jacket that he's wearing whenever he meets the asbestos people? I don't know. I know he gets like sort of a reddish, maroonish um, bathrobe maybe or bed to- bedrobe. Um, right. From uh, from hauling. I don't know. What is he wearing in this? Oh, he's got a, He's just got a blanket draped over him. It looks like like a sleeping bag almost. Yeah. Oh, but I see what you're saying. Like, was he wearing, was he like draping himself in the same blanket when he was waiting out in the snow? Uh, uh no, no no not in the snow but like okay I, I thought he just draped like the jacket over him and it looks like a blanket but i think they're two totally different things yeah mm-hmm. um but they have the same shade of red which is really neat mm-hmm. um because that's going to play into the very next scene that we see with maurice which is him revisiting his greenhouse with the asbestos people because things keep getting worse and worse for him yeah his heater blows out and he discovers that like he can no longer store his plants here um they're gonna surely die whenever winter comes in through the windows. And Maurice is wearing a yellow jacket now. Mm-hmm. It's very bright yellow. Yeah. Um, I thought it was very interesting on two things. One is that yellow, uh, famously in The Great Gatsby, represents corruption and greed. So like Dr. T.J. Eckelberg's enormous yellow spectacles, Gatsby's golden tie, it's all of these things that represent consumption and all of those fancy things. Number two is that in order to create the color yellow, you mix red and green. So he's wearing this red jacket and he's going into a green room. Mm. You mix those together and you get yellow. And in the third case, yellow doesn't have to be read as corruption. Like I think like, if you had never read The Great Gatsby before, I think you could understand that like yellow kind of means warmth. It kind of means the the sun. Mm-hmm. So Maurice is kind of like the missing sun rays for these plants. He is these orchards' last hope. I like that too, yeah. And I like just the idea that like these symbols can have, these color symbols can really mean a lot of different things uh, to different people. Just the fact that there is a shift in these costuming colors indicates something, you know, more, uh, this is like subtextually indicating a change in the character perhaps, or in the storyline. And, uh, yeah, it is, I think a very apparent shift. And I just wanted to also say like, I don't think we've ever seen Maurice in that yellow, 
it almost looks like a rain jacket or something. It's mm-hmm. so yeah. bright yellow. So I think it is very, it is a very deliberate choice on the costume designer to include this um, color change here. You already pointed this out, but it's uh, P.W. Stevens who sort of gives the ultimatum in this scene, basically saying that without the generator and the heaters, you know, you've got this, I think it's like the skylights or something, like the windows are going to sort of contain the residual heat of the greenhouse for the day. But by the time nightfall comes, the chill is going to overtake this like climate, this controlled area and all, all the plants are going to die. So we have this ticking time bomb of nightfall that Maurice needs to prepare for. Right. And that brings us to a very poignant moment with Maurice. He's giving a public service address for his flowers at K-Bear. And he's trying to say that, like, in a few hours, these plants will no longer exist. They're going to be taken by the cold grasp of winter uh, to symbolize that we see him framed with the outside window and like there's frost growing on that window. Mm -hmm. So like it's enclosing him, like it's coming in to go get that orchard that's sitting next to him on his side. He's dressed in that yellow raincoat. That's the plant's last hope for survival right there. He's (laughs) Maurice. Uh, And he gives like this story of how he's saying like, I always use these flowers to try to cheer people up. Like anybody that was like over the age of 60 um, and maybe they don't have anyone to give receive flowers from, I would give them some of the orchards. I was trying my best. Uh, but he's realizing that like he has to spread his quote unquote, his wealth. He mm-hmm. has to help other people rather than just store it into one singular location. He knows that like at the end of his rope, rather than let them die, he's going to give away his prize collection. Yeah. He, he has a, such a large, he has put so much value in these flowers, as we saw in the beginning of the episode where he rushes to the greenhouse while, you know, everyone else, he's like, okay, you go grab this uh, rug, you grab this chandelier, whatever, like the, this ornate, whatever, like you, you can handle that. But for the orchids, he's got to do the, do it personally. For him, it's perhaps the most valuable thing, but I guess he's realizing now that to preserve that value is also paradoxically to like get rid of it and to share it. Like the thing he loves about these orchids is in the end of the day, not having them all in a greenhouse, but just the fact that they are existing, I guess that he spent, I think he says earlier, he spent like 18 years. I don't know if he's talking about the greenhouse or developing that one orchid. He did mention the number 18 years um, that he's been, I don't know, doing orchid stuff. So yeah, he's come to at this point, find uh, a solution to keep these plants alive is to share them and to um, endeavor the townsfolk to ask them for help, you know, whereas he was just arguing with Holling. He's like, I don't need your help. I don't want to be indebted to you. He's uh, now, I guess, comfortable with giving this out and, and looking for help from others, maybe. Right, exactly. Well said right there. And that brings us to the final scene, which is him in his greenhouse. They have assembled like a queue, the the townsfolk, and they're all receiving various mm-hmm. flowers. Maurice is giving them various instructions saying like, okay, you got to keep this one warm. You, this one needs this amount of water. He obviously cares about these plants and he wants to keep them alive. And then uh, suddenly he gives away like a pretty prized one. The Rhinco, I want to say Rhinolalia. I'm going to say that's how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. He says like, all right, I'm going to give away this Roncolalia. And he gives it to Holly and he doesn't realize it. They kind of look at each other and 
Holland's like, you know, I just wanted to help you out. You know, I want to take on like a little bit of debt from you now. Going to reciprocate this relationship. And Murray says like, all right, well, you need to be careful with them. They're delicate. It's like huge subtext. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. So uh, Holland says, uh, are they delicate? And, And Maurice says, they'll be fine. So it's like, you know, he's, there is subtext in that, like Holling is like understanding Maurice now. It's like, okay, you're delicate. And Maurice is saying, you know, yeah, they, I am, but it's going to be okay. Like you're, you're capable, you know, I trust you. Right. And, um, he also says something like, oh, one more thing, Holling, they prefer rainwater to tap. So I guess like you could also say that's a lot like Maurice. Like he prefers uh, something a little fancier than tap water. Maybe. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do have to say that like, I don't think that's Reincolalia. It's not. If you, ever, if not you Google, <laughs> if you Google Reincolalia, like you don't have to be a gardener to even know the difference between there. Like it looks really distinct. Like it's got like this fuzz in the middle. Like you can't miss it. I just typed you look in Lalia. What's Reincolalia? But it's gotta be Reincolalia. How do you, sp- that's like, how do you spell Reincolalia? Uh, R-H-Y-N-C-H-O-L-A-E-L-I-A. Yeah. Yeah. You see how it's like not even, I don't know. They're both, la- they're both orchards is okay. what he's giving. I know that, but like, I, I think they just didn't have any on, on hand. Yeah. So they're just like, whatever. These look, there's a, a couple different, maybe there's different ones like Rycolalia digbiana, Rycolalia glauca. But one of them is the one that I see the most is very like fuzzy and wiry, which is interesting. Right. So there's like the one he gives is just like a standard, standard orchard from what I'm saying. Just a flower. No, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of variety here um, in the flowers, but, but yeah, I guess they just didn't have that, the right thing there. And they, they wanted to keep that in the script for whatever reason. I don't, I don't know enough about flowers to, to know what separates this orchid from the others apart from its its looks. But um, is that the last scene with Maurice? Yeah, I think that so. Is, that's how we end his plot line. Which is nice because I think that's sort of the climactic scene where this tension is resolved between Maurice and Holling and just Maurice and himself like knowing how to um, look to others for help in a way and accept help from others at the same time too. All right, that's going to warp us right back to the beginning where I think we should be talking about Chris. Chris Got and the it. deer. Okay, yeah, I like that. Yeah, so Chris is returning back from his failure to kill the deer. He comes back to a pretty sweet pad. Like, I like this location that he's got <laughs> set up. It's got some, I know it's his house and everything, right. but like, he's, it, it looks really cool with the uh, Christmas string lights right there. It's yeah. got like a little desk outside. Does he have like a deck out there? I'm remembering got, like, um, go ahead. Yeah, he's got like a, like a park bench. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I remember like whenever his brother Bernard and like his ex-girlfriend came to uh, Sicily, they were hanging out in this same location and it, you know, it looks pretty cool. He's got a nice little outdoor, you know, patio type setup, even though he doesn't have a house or a patio. It's like he has got a little recreation area or something. <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> yeah. He picks up some buckhorn right there. Mm-hmm. Is buckhorn real? Buckhorn is real. This is so he picks up buckhorn sour mash. Uh, I did look up buckhorn sour mash and couldn't really find exactly that just on a quick, like cursory Google. But buckhorn is like a brand of whiskey, maybe bourbon, I think. Um, though I also, I okay, I didn't really let's just look real fast because uh, 
you know, it's always possible that this brand didn't emerge until after um, this episode aired, but it sounds like a um, brand that would be around for a while. Let's see. Okay, so from what I found, Buckhorn is a Total Wine exclusive. It is sold to them by the Clear Spring Distilling Company. So this is maybe not an actual brand. It was just like a sort of like an off-branded thing that they made for um, Total Wine. Do you know Total Wine? It's like a, mm-hmm. a liquor store. Yeah. So I don't know. It is possible that this is at the time of uh, broadcast, this is like a made up brand. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. I'm yeah. pretty sure it's made up because if you're looking I, at this. That's what I would have thought. Yeah. Go ahead. It says it's bottled in Midway Woodford Company, Kentucky. And if you look at the Buckhorn Reserve, like the the one in real life, it says it's in Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, it doesn't share the same distillery name. Uh, is that a T? What is that? Is it like TSJ? Or is it just <laughs> SJ? I can't really tell. Uh, SJ Greenbaum Company Distillery for right. uh, uh, Chris's Buckhorn. So, yeah, probably just made up. Yeah. And then it turns out that there is an actual Buckhorn brand either after the date of this, uh, after this air date or just like, you know, they didn't know that there's this sort of like phantom distillery that makes, uh, you know, makes off-branded bourbon for total wine. This is Sour Mash and, uh, the name is fitting, you know, Chris is like, huh, that's funny. Buckhorn. Um, I think, does he also like in this scene, he just kind of like calls out to, you know, the air to nobody's like, thank you. Like as if like the deer is listening or something. Yeah. He says like, thanks. <laughs> yeah. So that's that, that's that scene, right? Mm-hmm. We get, we get the sense that maybe this deer is like paying it back to Chris in a way. But the next time we see Chris, he's going on the radio now to talk about his hunting trip, how he froze up. Turns out he, um, he, I think he mentions that after he saw the deer and didn't shoot it, he ended up killing like six rabbits afterwards. So it's not that he was just like giving up on hunting. It's just something about this deer that um, clicked in his brain to, to turn it off and he wasn't going to pull the trigger. Uh, but now he says, uh, you know, he, this, this deer sent him a bottle of buckhorn, you know, uh, maybe, or no, no, no. He, he says, he asks the listener to say like, you know, this is too much of a coincidence. And he's like, you know, if you're the person who sent me this bottle, call me in, let me know. I want to say thanks. Also like, why did you send it last night? That's such a coincidence. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. At this point, what do we think? Does Chris think that the deer gave it to him? I don't think, I don't think that's like completely out of the question. I think just on the air, he's like suggesting, okay, maybe there's still a a logical explanation for this, but I don't know. Yeah. He's going to, he's going to test his hypothesis in the next scene Mm -hmm. because he goes back out into the wilderness. Uh, I really like how this was shot because he's emerging from the river and the lower third is the snow. And then, like, the middle third is where Chris and the river are. And the upper third is, like, the sky and the mountains. So Chris is on, like, the middle third right here. And he's emerging from it. He's got an apple in his hand. And he lays it on this tree stump. But the way he gets to the tree stump is that the camera pans back. So it reveals the tree stump Mm -hmm. whenever he's walking forward. Kind of a neat little trick right there. And then right when he puts the apple down and he looks toward the forest, the camera turns with him. 
right there. It's mm-hmm. not like a hard cut or anything like that. So it turns with him where now the lower third is still the snow, but the middle third and the upper third are now the forest. So the river is gone from the equation. Mm, yeah. Yeah, some good like camera movement, just guiding our attention, revealing the tree stump and then panning to the woods now to look for the deer. Like Chris is even calling out again. He's like, hey, um, hey, Mr. Deer, come on, whatever. Uh, sorry, I was just looking at my notes as well. I noticed that we get a very clear shot of Chris's uh, costume in this episode, in this scene. Uh, he wears this Carhartt vest. Like the logo on the vest is, I think it's been like Greeked to... Um, to like kind of change the logo so it's not exactly Carhartt, mm-hmm. but it's sort of an imitation. I think it's probably an actually like a, a Carhartt vest that was um, greeked out the logo. But are you familiar with this brand, Charles? Yeah, it's one of those brands. I think it's really funny. Um, there are certain brands that used to be for like working class people for like yeah. for them to do things <laughs> that are like uh, like manual labor. Uh, right. they, they were very sturdy. <laughs> these these outfits wouldn't tear very much. Uh, and then suddenly they get like co-opted by uh, like the fashion people. I, I, don't, I don't know what the term is for that. <laughs> those fashion people. Yeah. yeah like those, just people that are like really mindful of what they wear. And like suddenly Carhartt became like, you know, a really cool hit brand to wear. Uh, it's kind of similar to, um, what is that called? Champion? What's that? Oh, is Champion like a sport sportswear brand or something? Yeah. You've definitely seen it before. Let me see if I can find an image for you. It, it's that one with the, it, it kind of looks like France's flag. And it's in like a half circle to, to look like a C. Oh, France. France's flag. Okay. I was thinking Francis Bacon. Like, <laughs> Oh. <laughs> let me see. Let me, let me link it to you, I guess. No, I, I, I do know this logo. Yeah. But yeah. it's like sportswear, right? I, not necessarily for not sports. Not exactly? Okay. I've it, seen it's it like, though. Yeah. Yeah. You've seen it at like Walmart and stuff like <laughs> that. But then suddenly it, uh, it just got like really hip to wear. And then suddenly they just like their prices just got like jacked up. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Chris was doing it back in the 90s when it was before it was cool. He's wearing the Carhartt vest. Um, something also I didn't point out earlier, but we get it in the very first scene with Chris and the deer is the score is like uh, sort of this guitar bluesy type score. I don't think we've really heard music like this at all or often in Northern Exposure. It's a little different, but uh, I kind of like it, so I'll play a little bit of it. Um, I think it fits well with this scene, this sequence at least. have to assume that's David Schwartz. Yeah, it's it seems like it doesn't sound exactly like Northern Exposure until like the very last line, I think, has like sort of a, I don't know, reminds me of like Maggie's theme or maybe some of that like bluesy clarinet stuff, something about that melody. Yeah. So we get that music playing whenever he leaves the apple on the stump, he leaves off into the forest, but then he stumbles upon $5? Can't really 50, tell. $50. $50. At first I thought it was a 20 and then later I think Maurice says $50 and I had to go back and be like, oh wait, that's actually Grant. Yeah. 
Yeah, he stumbles upon a $50 bill, and then he uh, rushes back to the stump. The camera's kind of neat because it comes with him. Like it's uh, mm-hmm. yeah. it's coming along with him, adds a lot of excitement to the scene, having a camera track along. And then he sees that the apple is gone. Yeah, he's a little upset. I think he was. I think he wanted to see the deer. Basically, that's what I got. But mm-hmm. um, he got fifty bucks out of this, so that's pretty nice. Um, and that's when uh, you know we talk about this. Uh, we talked about this earlier with Maurice crashing at K Bear and Chris like rolling into the studio. Uh, this is like I think one a.m. at night, as um, according to Maurice's alarm clock here. Chris is looking for his portable Young, so like a paperback. Uh, portable version of some young, uh, Carl Jung book or something. And he says, there's more to coincidence than just coincidence, synchronicity. And I'm thinking about this. I think this might've been my first time ever hearing about the term synchronicity. Cause when I saw this episode, I mean, not today, but when I originally saw this episode, uh, when I was in high school, I was, you know, definitely into Carl Jung. And then this show, like, you know, really made me be like, oh, this is awesome. This show talks about Carl Jung and other things like that. So I wanted to know more. And I don't think I'd ever really heard about this. Maybe I learned it through the show. Maybe not. But um, yeah, it's just like a cool concept. The idea that, as we just said, there's more to coincidence than just coincidence. Uh, The theory of meaningful coincidence, Chris says. So there's some meaning behind What's going on here? 50 bucks. Um, I'm guessing is 50 bucks supposed to be like an analog for like a 50 point buck or something like that? I think he's saying like it's a repayment of debt. Repayment of debt, obviously. Yeah, him receiving that money. Uh, I synchron, what what is it? Synchronicity? Mm -hmm. That means to like things are occurring at the same time, right? Like it's synchronized. Yes, but also there's like a term, there's a, Carl Jung has a term for synchronicity, which, um, let me see if I can find a good definition for it. Because it does have a definition, obviously, mm. but whenever you take it um, as a concept, let's see, as a, as a concept first introduced by analytical psychologist Carl Jung, uh, to describe circumstances that appear meaningfully related yet lack causal connection. Uh, in contemporary research, synchronicity experiences refer to one's subjective experience that coincidences between events in one's mind and the outside world may be causally unrelated to each other, yet have some other unknown connection. Young held that this was a healthy, even necessary function of the human mind that can become harmful within psychosis. Uh, So obviously like, you know, this is, this could be taken a little too far. And Maurice is like basically saying that, like you're taking this a little too far, but um, yeah, the idea that, there is some sort of meaning to um, having having coincidences. What is the meaning here? And maybe it's just psychological in our own mind, but you can also extrapolate that to being like, we live in a magical world that has synchronous moments or something mm. like that. I think that's neat that, um, I mean, we've talked about this before to some regard, but I think it's neat that Northern Exposure tries to weave in uh, Carl Jung into its dialogue and mm-hmm. tries to extrapolate that into uh, meaning throughout the episode. It's not like the fulcrum is decided on this. This is just something that Chris brought up that I thought was really fun. Um, yeah. I think they're like, I don't know. I, I think there's like a prevailing attitude right now where people get really peeved at media that tries to deviate from the ordinary and tries to introduce concepts like this. And they might even be like, oh, they're just like shoehorning this in to appear intellectual or... 
they're just like uh, babbling and this type of stuff. Um, it, you know, it's just not, it feels off putting and it, it feels like it's quote unquote try harding. But like, really, do you want to live in a world in which uh, like media doesn't attempt to do that? Like, is that really the thing that you want? Like, I, I think that like, it's good that Northern Exposure at least tries to do this. And while it's not doing it at like an extremely deep level, it's also like television. It doesn't like, not like the mezzanine section of La Scala. <laughs> like, uh, you have to understand that like there needs to be some surface level attention to it so that everybody can kind of get in on it. Um, so what I'm trying to say here is that like, I think it's fine to like be introducing these concepts and to be getting into it and like learning about it from like yeah. high school age to even in your like, I don't know, much later in life to be introduced to these concepts and then build off of there and then like learn more and more into it. I don't know why I, I just stumbled upon that. Uh, like a couple of weeks ago where I, I kept seeing people like deriding other films for trying to like go a little bit beyond and people calling it pretentious. It's like, what does that even mean, man? Like, what is that just because yeah. it did not have like an explosion in it? Like you're going to call it pretentious. <laughs> I don't know. I, I can't, I can't guess at what exactly you're pointing at, but I think I see what you're saying. And, and I agree. Like, um, I'm not bothered by that. I think there can be instances where it is a little too much, where it just seems like, um, you know, they're like, oh, these are some cool concepts that sound interesting, but there's really no um, substance there or something. Mm -hmm. But I also think that Northern Exposure, yeah, it's just sort of giving you like the surface level introduction to this concept here of synchronicity. And it's not a, you know, it's not the solution to this plot line. It's not like the lesson we learn, but it is such a cool flavor that I think meshes well with Chris's character too. Like this is something that Chris would be talking about, uh, in this situation. So I think it like, it's warranted by his characterization for them to like go on this tangent and talk about these coincidences. Um, and yeah, you know, it's just, this is just one plot, uh, among others in this episode. So it's not like this whole episode has to be concerned with synchronicity. Um, but I think it's used, um, appropriately in this episode, in this scene. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, we're going to see Chris try to, uh, I guess, you know, go for th the third time because he's got yeah. some corn on him. Going to try to just leave the corn on the stump. <laughs> Going to try to lure the deer in. Uh, what makes this like kind of foreboding is that he's got his gun now. Like previously he did not. Oh yeah, I didn't notice that. When he came with the apple, he didn't have the gun. Yeah. I didn't, now he has a gun. It's like yeah. gonna, he wants to finally kill this deer. Yeah. Uh, the, the, co the cool thing about Northern Expander is that like I knew in the back of my mind he was not going to shoot that deer. I, yeah. I don't know if it's mm -hmm. because of like a film uh, language thing where you're like, they're not going to show the violence of an animal on screen. Like They're just, they're just not going to do that. Um, but it's also in like the language of Northern Exposure where you knew that like we're just not going to see that being depicted because of how everything else is happening right there. So it's kind of nice to know that you know, at the back of your mind, you're like, I'm not about to see something of that caliber happen. Yeah, it's not like a violent show or, you know, Chris isn't like a trickster or anything like that. Yeah. So like maybe some other, I don't know, like HBO show might actually go through with it. And then there'd be a whole plot point about Chris maybe going through guilt, maybe grieving, maybe even like celebrating. Just like they, they would have continued forward with that plot line. But like Northern Exposure took it in a different direction where it was like, it's going through like a strange surrealism where we think this deer is being endowed with special powers and is mm -hmm. trading off of him. And we see it in this scene where like 
Chris believes that like the deer led him into the river. So like Chris goes toward like this ledge and he drops his rifle into the river and he goes into it to go fetch it out, but he can't find it. It's lost. And he emerges out of the river and he thinks that the deer has pulled a fast one on him. Yeah. He goes back and finds that the corn is gone. So similarly to the, um, the apple, you know, he, he missed his chance at finding the deer and except this time he lost his gun and he, he, you know, he ends up going on the radio next talking about this again. He talks about how that gun came from his uncle, Roy Bauer, who back in the day bought it for $198. Chris said, um, to replace that gun, it cost him $350 and that, you know, obviously it's like a family heirloom. So there's like maybe more of a cost there, but just monetarily $350. And if you factor in the buckhorn sour mash and uh, the $50 bill, it doesn't really balance out. Like the deer may made out on top if we are <laughs> um, to believe that the deer is doing all these things. But so what are we left with here? I think Chris even himself says, you know, what's the moral of this story? I don't know. I think it's really difficult. Like, uh, more like maybe difficult is not the right word. I, I just think it, it's like open, open to yeah. yeah, open to a lot of interpretations. So I think it's interesting that Chris goes into the river to retrieve his rifle. Rivers in literature symbolically represent like a lot of things, but mm-hmm. a journey is usually one of them. We talked about that in the last episode. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, rivers contain water, being bathed in water, whether it's rain or literally going into a river, uh, might symbolize being born anew. Like he loses his family heirloom, which is like mm-hmm. his connection to his uh, ancestors. So he loses that by literally going into the water. He's, you know, coming out a new person, maybe with like a different perspective. I don't know. I'm not really a huge fan of that one because it's not like Chris comes out with a reverence toward, you know, wildlife or anything like that. He, he just he's kind of a uh, he's kind of questioning everything himself. Like he's maybe even thinking about synchronicity. Maybe like are these just a series of coincidences? Yeah. Chris's um, answer that he gives on air or some of the answers, some, some options he gives on air is, um, you know, what's the moral of the story? Is it know when to fold them? Uh, he says like, you know, my uncle Roy Bauer used to say the deer that returns to the lick too often eventually meets the hunter. You know, that might play into something right there. The, the deer mm-hmm. he goes back to the lick eventually meets the hunter. It's like if you, okay. uh, if you try to force it, then like the series of coincidences will eventually happen. Yeah. You know, if you keep, if you keep showing up at all, yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna come out that way. Um, I wrote down in my notes, is this like, well, let's talk about this, I guess, because we kind of talked about it at the beginning of this plot line, but what do you think it is that causes Chris to, uh, you know, in the very first scene with the deer, why doesn't he shoot the deer? Like, I think at first I was, going to believe like this is him being merciful, but, um, you know, he's maybe merciful to this deer, but not to the, you know, half dozen rabbits that he shoots on his way home. And, you know, why is it, um, this deer, is there some like connection that he felt? Uh, does he see something more than animal in this deer? Because like later in the episode, not, not only in the choice of like not killing this deer, does he like you know, give it a, a bit more importance, but also like he gives it importance uh, thinking that it has the power to like pay him back uh, to say thanks to him with $50 bill or buckhorn whiskey. Um, these are just things that 
are coincidences and are unrelated, I guess. But as soon as he notices the whiskey, as soon as he sees the $50 bill, all these, all these elements, he, um, he wants to form the story in his head, I guess. Yeah. He's got like a, you know, like all human beings, he has a pattern seeking brain. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to like make sense of all of these things. The reason I don't want to delve too much into that one is because I felt like we talked about this with Ed and the Lightning, how you were yeah. trying to find uh, meaning in seemingly meaningful uh, events, like being struck by lightning. We got to, you know, imbue it with special properties. That was in a bolt from the blue. This right. Season, yeah. This one is a little bit more tricky. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to say that they're treading on the same territory. I don't have much to say other than yeah, yeah. Other than like, there is a striking resemblance to this and uh, Harry Potter. Have you have <laughs> yeah. you seen the uh, seen or read the last book? Uh no, I haven't. But tell me. So like, I don't. I mean, I guess it's spoiler warnings. If you like, spoiler alert. Seen, yeah, haven't seen or read Harry Potter, but like. Very quick summary. Uh, Harry's looking for like these uh, Deathly Hollows. There's three of them. Um, the Elder Wand, the Invisibility Cloak, and the uh, Stone of Resurrection. And he's got the Invisibility Cloak with them, so he needs the other two. And one day when they're out in the woods, they're like separated from society. It's him, Hermione, and uh, I think, yeah, it's, it's just him and Hermione. I'm sorry. Okay. Ron went away. He finds a deer out in the forest. I want to say it's a stag or a doe. I can't remember. That that is an important distinction, but it doesn't really matter that much. It is something (laughs) that looks like a deer. He sees (laughs) it in the forest and he's like, holy crap. Like that's, you know, this is amazing. It's someone's Patronus. And he goes and follows this deer and it brings him out into this lake. And in the lake, this frozen lake, there is the resurrection stone. It's in the water, but Harry has to go into it to go fetch it out. And Harry almost dies and Ron comes back and saves his life. But like, there's <laughs> a, like a lot of similarities to this. Like, you know, Chris goes into the river to go find his rifle that a deer yeah. led him to and it's freezing. Like, <laughs> very similar things. I think, yeah, it's just maybe, um, if, if, if nothing else, this plot line is just like rife with symbols and it, it uh, introduces you to the idea of like maybe we can draw meaning from meaningless events. And um, if nothing else, I think that's a great, that's a great idea for a subplot, I think. But anyway, we've got one final subplot and it's Joel and the titular gift of the Maggie. Uh, We talked already about Joel doing this house call with this patient Elaine, uh, but we haven't really got yet to the Eureka moment. Well, the Eureka moment in that scene is him being like, I think I know what this is. Um, though, you know, we haven't got yet to the moment when he's like, okay, we figured it out. So he does figure it out in the very next scene. So very early in the episode, um, after visiting Elaine, I think it's perhaps even later that night. Um, but it is like a, a nighttime dinner scene. We're in Joel's cabin. He's uh, stirring up some spaghetti and the pot and serving wine and spaghetti for dinner with Maggie there. And he's talking about like his work day, you know, talking about this Zollinger Ellison syndrome, super rare. Um, Lots of terminology here that uh, Maggie is trying to entertain, but we can tell that it's kind of, um, it's not super connecting. So she's just being like a good sport. Uh, And 
you know, Joel can't fault her for that. You know, he, he realizes he's kind of like going over her head, but he's like, yes, this is a, this is kind of a big deal, but you know, what does it matter? You know? Oh, you know what? I can, I can kind of see the connection between Chris's thing and this thing. Okay. So like the thing he discovers, Zollinger Ellison syndrome, ZE syndrome is a disease in which tumors cause the stomach to produce too much acid, resulting in peptic ulcers. Symptoms include abdominal pain and diarrhea. Now, here's the thing. Sporadic reports of unusual cases of peptic ulceration in the presence of pancreatic tumors occurred prior to 1955, but R.M. Zollinger and E.H. Ellison, surgeons at Ohio State University, were the first to postulate a casual relationship between these findings. So mm-hmm. you have like this symptom and another symptom and people kind of like wrote it off for a while. But then these two people were like, hold up, they're actually related. Like this thing mm-hmm. is actually causing this. It's all it's all coming together. And, you know, they get to name it. They get to call it Zollinger Ellison syndrome. What I'm getting at here is that these series of coincidences are actually connected so kind of like with Chris, where he's saying like, is this just like a coincidence that like I ended up with buckhorn and I got like this, you know, the apple and the corn were gone and my rifle went down to the river. Like what is going on over here? It's kind of like the Zillinger Ellison syndrome where they're like, they're actually connected through some weird yeah. way. The synchronicity. Yeah. yeah there we go. <laughs> there we and go. also, uh, one thing that I thought was a like big subtext in this scene is that it doesn't matter what Joel is saying and all this doctor jargon. He summarizes it for us at the very end where he says, You got to get down to the root cause. The ulcers are secondary effect. The tumor must come first. What he's saying is that like, you got to look at the wider scope of things and attack the root cause and not the branches. Mm -hmm. And wait, what is this relating to? Uh, I think it's going to relate in the end. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I like that. All right. So, um, yeah, it's basically, we get that scene, you know, we get the idea that Joel is uh, really proud of himself and kind of finding it hard to share. But also I like that it, it seems like he's like, okay, I know I'm just kind of like, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting across. It's my fault though. It's not your fault. It's like, this is just, this is just the truth of the situation that, that I'm in right now. I can't really share this with anybody, which is going to weigh on uh, Joel, I think heavier and heavier. I think the next scene with him is in Ruthann store. Is that right? Yeah, he talks about this with uh, with Ed because he's also dabbling in medicine. But then he realizes that like Ed doesn't have any idea what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And he's saying like, hey, this is where he realizes. He's like, all right, well, I don't have anybody else to talk about this very nuanced, specific thing. Yeah, and you know, this is in the opening soundbite that we played for this episode. But from this scene, Joel says, you know, this is my most noteworthy event in my medical career but no one, uh, no one has a clue of what I'm talking about, you know? And Ed will later say that to Maggie in that opening soundbite that we had. So we get this sense now, um, you know, Joel, I think originally came in probably mostly just to talk with Ed or maybe like, I don't know, just cause he came in looking for baking soda at the end of the scene. He like leaves. He's like, Oh, I'm sorry, Ruthann. I don't actually need this. He like gives her the baking soda and leaves. <laughs> so I wonder if he's just mostly going in there just to hang out uh, and, yeah, we talked about this kind of in our opening in our opening bit, but um, yeah, it's just not something that's really going to gel with with this crowd, I think. So we see um, Maggie later inviting Joel to um, to go out on a mail run with her. It's like, hey, we can go get some Chinese food on the way back. 
and um, Joel just being being more um, sort of depressive feeling. He feels trapped, he says. And uh, this is kind of a short scene. I'm trying to think of what happens in this scene um, because I think it's basically just Joel saying, like, you know, sometimes being here gets to me. Like being in Sicily is uh, it's starting to become a burden, at least at this moment. Yeah, that's the that's the same scene because Joel just gets up and leaves, and then Ed takes his place, and then Ed is the one that completes the equation for her. He says like, "Oh, the reason that Joel what what he's really saying is that he doesn't have anybody to talk shop with." That was the opening soundbite that we used. Right, and so Maggie will go over to Joel's office later. He's got the lights off, and uh, um, I saw this on Twitter recently. I think it was out of context. Northern exposure. I'm not sure, but uh, no, no, no. This was just uh, someone. I can't remember. It was like a someone watching the show posted this screenshot and it was, uh, you know, Joel saying like, I'm not depressed. Maybe, maybe I am a little depressed. I don't know. You know, it's like, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> um, sorry, Charles, I sent you a, a text earlier today of a, a different tweet. It was, uh, a picture oh, yeah. of the balloon Mario. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I saw that this morning and then I watched this episode this morning and, uh, thought it was a great connection, but it's just a picture of this, like, I guess like a Mario balloon that someone had, but it's kind of deflated and it's like laying on the ground. It, it's face a large down. It's one of those like parade balloons. Like it's a right. large one. Not like a, you know, like a like a one for a birthday party. The caption is, It's a me, depression. <laughs> it's like Mario face down, planted on the ground. He just looks, yeah, so defeated. Soon to be Chris Pratt's voice. Oh God, yeah. That's true. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, well, we're going to see Maggie uh, try to be a good girlfriend. She's going to go to Joel's office. Uh, the lights are off, like you said, and she turns it on. And Joel's saying that, like, he was reaching out to, like, all of his other friends at medical school to talk about this occasion, even the people that he didn't really care about that much. And then Maggie says, like, well, you know, there is somebody that I could invite. You know, he's another doctor. He's up there in, like, another part of Alaska right there. I'm sure, uh... They would love to hear you talk about this. Yeah, she's already planned like a dinner. She's like, come over. Um, this uh, Pete Mellon from the Gardner Naval Station. He's got a clinic up there in Gardner. Um, he's an internist and uh, he's coming over for dinner and y'all can maybe chat about it, you know? So um, this this sounds like uh, this sounds like this could work out pretty good. And, you know, thank you, Maggie, for, you know, thinking about Joel here. So hopefully this will work out. Uh, let's see, whenever it does come about, this is um, at Maggie's later at night for dinner. Joel brought a, uh, a cheesecake from Zabar's. He had it in the freezer, I guess, probably from a, a delivery a while ago and has just been saving it for the right occasion. And he gets to nerd out with this Pete Mellon. Um, you know, Maggie is kind of going around making sure everything's good. Like, Joel, do you need some cheese? How about some wine? She like goes off into the kitchen and is preparing some stuff, but she's kind of looking, looking out to them in the living room. Uh, and they're kind of just nerding out about this uh, discover, I guess you wouldn't call it discovery, but this uh, diagnosis that that Joel makes. Right. It's blocked really well. So like Joel sits on a chair by himself and then Pete is on the right side and he sits on a wider sofa. And next to that wider sofa is another chair that Maggie sits in. And a lot of times the camera goes between the two, between just Joel in the frame to Maggie and Pete in the frame, indicating that like Maggie's kind of with the doctor initially. Um, and Joel is alone by them by himself. But then once Joel starts to realize who he is, Joel steps over to his couch 
and he's framed now with Pete and Maggie gets up and leaves. And then she goes behind the counter and then the camera, you know, a little bit of a wide shot shows both Joel and Pete by themselves without Maggie there. Yeah. Sort of like a budding friendship, like a little matchmaker in a way uh, Maggie has brought these two together. So, you know, they can have like a little shared hobby. I guess you wouldn't call it a hobby. This is a profession, but something they can nerd out about, like a shared I don't know, discussion, you know, this is their, this is the kind of talk that I guess only doctors could have fun uh, talking about in this situation. Uh, That's the end of that scene. But um, the next scene is, oh, I love this actually. Um, Ed comes to visit Joel. He's returning this like doctoral encyclopedia of medicine or something that, that uh, he borrowed from Joel. And he's like, I guess I don't really need this anymore because now you've got Pete to, to talk uh, doctor stuff with. So you can have this back. But I love whenever Ed comes into the office. Uh, here, I'll play the sound bite. Morning, Dr. Fleischman. Hey. You want me to knock? Oh, come on in. You ever see a spiral fracture of a left femur? Right there. Bones. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. Um, you know, Ed is asking Joel, like, oh, wait, should I knock before entering? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm just imagining all the times Ed has, you know, walked into Joel's house, uh, you know, with with uh, without the door being locked or, you know, uh, it's just it's just pretty funny. And also, Joel, even even just showing an X-ray to Ed, all he can say is uh, cool bones, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> we get the sense that, yeah, he can't really... <laughs> Can't can't really see the same things in an X-ray that uh, that Joel can. Yeah, I mean, if you're being like really nice, I guess you just follow up and be like, okay, well, what makes it interesting? And you right, know, right. people like talking about themselves, so right. they don't like go into it. But like, you know, Ed's Ed. Um, but Ed also reveals that Pete is getting something out of this situation. He's getting rides to Juno to meet up with his girlfriend, and. That is why he initially agreed to meet up with Joel. Yeah, this is sort of a, I think Joel calls it a bribe that mm-hmm. Maggie has has just sort of like instated here. Like she's going to give Pete free rides to, or free flights to Juno. And in turn, he's going to come and hang out with Joel. So with that knowledge, Joel um, feels played. He feels tricked. He also feels like he's kind of a schmuck. I don't know if he uses those words, but he says something to the effect of like, oh, Pete must think I'm like a loser. Like I just don't have any friends that you would go out of your way to like, basically like, you know, he owes you. He Like him hanging out with me is like him repaying you. And I can kind of see some similarities with Maurice's plot line here too. But I think what really connected here, uh, this all here for me is like, Joel, I think, feels like he's in sort of this fabricated relationship here. And to me, I got the image of like an animal trapped in a zoo or something like that, or a pet that, you know, you just try to take care of. Um, But I think really a perfect allegory for a perfect like representation for this feeling is also an orchid too, which is like something that you have to sort of trick into you have to trick it into its climate in a way, you know, like we're in Alaska, orchids don't grow in Alaska. You have to fabricate and manufacture this false environment to give it what it needs. And it's not um, natural, but I mean, we get great results with orchids, but with Joel, this feeling of this sort of like manufactured friendship just feels like 
cheating. And um, it really, really disturbs him. Yeah, I, I don't blame him at all because maybe it feels like the, the foundation was built on a lie right there. Yeah, uh, we, we can see this come to a culmination. Uh, by the way, uh, good explanation. I really like that. I like how you read into the orchards <laughs> and the uh, yeah, how I you. Was- I was Go thinking, so, oh, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I was thinking about that after watching the episode because I felt like so many connections, but I didn't know. And then Orchid came to mind. I was like, oh yeah, this is actually kind of very similar to Orchids. But Yeah, like I, I, th- I think that fits really well. That's something I didn't think of right there. Uh, we can see the culmination of this kind of happen whenever they're going, um, what do they call it? Snor- snow, snowshoeing? Yeah, snowshoeing. Mm-hmm. I guess yeah. it's just hiking with uh, snowshoes, I think. Right. <laughs> That's uh, what it looks like. It's blocked really well, again, in my mm, opinion. Mm-hmm. So we're getting all three of them in the same shot. Joel, Pete, and Maggie walking together right there. And then once Pete tries to bring something up with Joel, Joel storms off. He goes up ahead. And then Maggie goes up ahead with them. And the camera's following with these two. And Pete's out of the picture. And once they start talking about it a little bit more, they finally say, like, well, what's your problem? He's like, that guy's like a cretin. You know, I, I think he's just... <laughs> He's not who he is. And then Pete shows up in the middle, in the background, between the two. He's framed between them, but in the background, between them, right when the dialogue says, like, he's a cretin. You know, it's a really cool use of blocking because, like, it matches right with the dialogue. Yeah. So the the text and the image are kind of lining up in really good ways. Right. And then, like, they got talking about it and they're saying, like, you know what? I feel like I'm somebody's ugly cousin that needs to be set up. <laughs> he, You know, he just starts losing it. I like how he says, um, yeah, he's like someone's ugly cousin. He says, I feel like some puppet, some pawn, some mercy chat. I actually never heard mercy chat, but mm-hmm. I like that phrase uh, for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, you're right. I, it's It's funny that he starts by just, like, dragging... Pete, like when he's talking to Maggie, he's like, yeah, that guy's a Cretan. Um, he's like making fun of Pete for going to Duke or for, for whatever reason, like that's not prestigious enough. But he pretty quickly is just like, you know what? I'm just deflecting Maggie because I'm really, really, I'm just mad at you. Like he like lays mm-hmm. it out for her and he's like, this is so messed up that you would do this. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's that scene. So, um, you know, the the result of this is that later... The next time we see Joel is uh, Maggie again coming to his office. This time she's here to apologize. You know, she just wanted to do something right and to help him out. Yeah, I think that's really important because she says, it's just, it's just that I thought that if you had somebody to talk to, well, that maybe you like it a little better up here. What are you talking about? Alaska? Alaska, Sicily, everything, everyone. So that goes back to that theme that Joel was talking about with ZE syndrome. And he says, like, the way you treat it is you get to the root cause. You get to the bigger Ah. picture. Don't go focusing on the ulcers. Focus on the tumor. And Maggie is trying to do something that makes Joel enjoy, like, the whole thing. All of Alaska. And, like, even though she kind of, like, pulled a fast one on Joel and kind of had to bribe this guy, like, the circumstances (laughs) kind of lined up in the end because Maggie says in this conversation, like, he genuinely did like talking to you. You know, he discovered that he also really likes talking about this stuff with you. I do like it. And it's kind of the last, we'll get there on the last scene, but I do like how it does actually turn out to, I mean, at least I want to believe, like, it turns out to be a cool, a good, strong friendship. Um, maybe we'll see him more. I don't know. I don't know if we will, but it is interesting that, you know, it isn't all just like, maybe it started under false pretenses, but like, it's a real 
budding friendship, I think, by the end. Um, but before we get to that scene, just talking in this scene here when when Maggie's apologizing, I, I also like what you just pointed out, how it's like the whole bigger picture of Alaska and being here and, and everything. Um, but Joel says to Maggie, you mean you wanted me to like it because... And then he stops. And then Maggie says, is that so bad? I, I feel like they did this in a recent episode. Maybe it was the last one or the one before. It was in uh, Una Volta in Linverno, where um, they're like, they're not speaking in full sentences. They're like leaving out words. And I don't know exactly what they're talking about. You wanted me to like it because blank? Is that so bad? Like what, uh, what are they talking about here? <laughs> I mean, I think I get, I get what's going on in the scene. It's just like, it's not a, it's kind of like unclear i think they're um maybe going for like a more naturalistic dialogue where people yeah. just cut each other off right there which i'm a fan of yeah. whenever it's done really well it's one of my favorites i, I love seeing that um uh, for some reason i didn't catch that yeah maybe maybe it was something else was going on but like um, yeah i think the scene makes enough sense that you know that doesn't it's not really a sticking point it's just no i just noticed it in the dialogue but i think you can get what's going on without them speaking in complete sentences i just thought it was yeah i don't know Mm. trying to overanalyze it maybe (laughs) (laughs) um you want to take it to the final scene yeah so the final scene um we've got maggie and joel they've just landed in the plane and i think they're up in gardner because uh pete is nearby like they're going to hang out with pete going to meet with pete it's funny uh (laughs) You know, they landed and they're about to get out of the plane and Maggie's like, oh, hold on one second. She likes is fixing Joel's hood. And he's like, what are you doing? Get off of me. What are you, my mother? (laughs) I mean, but he's not like being mean about it. It's just kind of funny. Just like, oh, come on. Like, uh, it it is cute because it's like, oh, it's like a little play date with Joel and Pete. And that's kind of like, you know, for lack of a better term, that's kind of what it is. Like Joel and Pete are going off to do their thing while Maggie has some other business to attend to. But like I said, it it's neat that it feels like um, this is kind of a true thing. Like, if anything, at least, um, you know, at first it was like Pete was just coming to Sicily because he was sort of being bribed into it. Now Joel, you know, is going to see Pete. So it's like, you know, it's like they're both making the trip back and forth. It's not so much that like uh, uh, Pete is being forced to hang out with Joel. Joel's like, no, I'll hang out with you on on these terms as well it's fine yeah uh they're gonna go talk about i don't even know what it is honestly i forgot <laughs> it's some sort of like new thing that pete has discovered on a slide yeah he's like, yeah i got it like ready for you man and he's like oh shoot he's like, yeah and they're like gonna go see this stuff right here yeah but isn't it neat that like yeah it seems this episode could have ended with just like a fallout but maggie and joel kind of uh, appreciate each other more for the effort, you know, but I yeah. think it's cool that it like didn't fall out. It's like, actually like, I don't, again, I don't know if we'll ever see this character again, but by the end of this episode, I think we're led to believe that like, Hey, this is like something that, that kind of worked out. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I like it. I, I think that you got to build the relationship. So it, it's nice yeah. that like, I, I think it works in Northern Exposure's favor whenever they're not going at each other as antagonistic <laughs> forces, but rather like, people that helped build each other right here. I'm sure they disagreed on this episode, but like that wasn't like the final resolution. It was understood that like they cared about each other at the end of the day and it ends on a happy note. Yeah. We kind of talked about this in an, in another episode in this season. I can't remember which, but how like 
so much of their relationship throughout the series is a will they, won't they, and it's always um, combative. And that's really fun to watch as well. But now we're in like sort of this new, like more mature relationship with Joel and Maggie. And every once in a while, we get some like really great, uh, maybe not even every once in a while, I think like their relationship is really cool because they are... They are so different and uh, so meant for each other in a way. Like, you know, they are able to butt heads and every, you know, we always get some sort of conflict that we can pull out of their relationship. But by the end of the episode, they handle it so maturely and come together so nicely. Um, and then, yeah, like in this episode, it works out pretty well for Joel and Pete. And I think that uh, the fact that Maggie and Joel are talking about this strengthens their relationship, you know. All right. Now is the point in our podcast where we like to invite on a guest, someone who has typically never seen Northern Exposure, and uh, we like to get their outsider opinion on this episode. Does this episode uh, stand up on its own? What did they think just being introduced to Northern Exposure here? Today, we have a special guest, my friend Anthony, who I guess I know as a comedian, uh, though he's also acted in a short film that I made. Um, Also, we know each other from college. But Anthony was also a guest at my birthday party, which uh, the last episode of the podcast, you will probably hear his voice as one of the guests who watched uh, the, the last episode of Northern Exposure we covered, Fish Story. But he's back this week, having seen one episode before, now watching The Gift of the Maggie. And uh, well, let's just let him tell us what he thought of the episode. Take it away. Hey, Lee, Charles. Uh, Okay, so I just finished the episode and I I took some notes. I don't know if I have any insightful thoughts or anything, but uh, I liked it more than the one that I watched last time, which was, I think, the last episode y'all did because, I don't know, that one had too much supernatural stuff going on and also I was at a party and I didn't follow any of it because there were people around me I think that's not the way to watch things uh, that you have no idea what is going on uh, anyway let's see what kind of notes I got here I feel like in the show they, they use like a lot of they feel free to use a lot of jargon in like technical speak that I feel like some shows wouldn't trust their audience to understand like with the plants and all the medical talk that Fleischman was doing uh, having I don't know. I got the. I finally got the humor of the show at the towards the end with the, his relationship with the other doctor. Uh, that got, you know, when he had the the conversation with Maggie at the end when she said he's got all these slides and he was like depressed before that, but then he's just like, "What slides?" And then he's like, uh, "He said that he had a good time." You know, he said for a GP, you tell a really good joke, and he's like, "Oh, he said that, huh? Guy should talk." It was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was some classic, uh, I don't know, David Chase had a big thing. I, for, I forgot that he had something to do with this again until the end of the episode. But uh, yeah, I could see that dialogue like where it's like a mostly, I don't know, dry, like dramatic, but there's, there's humor in there. I didn't get that with the other episode, but I, as I said, I wasn't paying enough attention. So uh, I didn't like the way Ed just sat down in Fleischman's seat when he got up from the... Uh, the cafe, the diner, when he was depressed and just like picked up his plate and looked at it and started talking to Maggie. I don't know why else he would have been there, but he did. He just kind of sat down there and was suspicious. Let's see. Uh, 
Shelly is, uh, she's insane. Um, I liked when she said, lay your baby blues on these pillow slips, parrots. She was really proud of those. And that, uh, that was all I needed to know about that character. Why is he married to her? Is he, are they married? Cause she seems like 30 to 40 years younger than him. And I looked it up and he is in his nineties now and she's like 57. So it seemed weird at the time. Now it seems weirder. Uh, I recognized Barry Corbin right away from No Country for Old Men. I didn't, I don't know, I guess he was in the other episode, but I didn't, like his speech pattern is just like, is very charming. I could watch that. I should, I could just watch him. I'll just watch his storylines just to hear him talk about the flowers and say all the technical names and stuff. But yeah, I liked the part when uh, Ed was trying to tell him that he learned, uh, he read a, uh, when he, 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 Fleischman was like showing him something about a spiral fracture of a left femur and Ed just said, bones. That was good. Uh, I like that every Sicilian lady over 60 gets a corsage for Easter. That's uh, a nice, uh, a nice um, detail. I didn't get that, like the John, oh no, Chris, Chris Stevens, his, uh, his storyline this episode didn't seem to, uh. I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't following it as closely as the other ones, but it didn't seem to to come to an end uh, in a way that was satisfying like the other two did. I like the way those wrapped up their storylines and they had a Hollings or whatever his name is was being like too pushy. That was like a creepy situation that he was stuck in with the the baby and them. Anyway, yes, feel free to skim through this recording and use what you want if I sound stupid during any of it, uh, use that too. Use this if you need to, uh, if that makes it uh, better for you. I don't know. In the end, the cute, the the little romantic relationship between the the doctors was just. Uh, I got it. I was I was into it. I don't know if he comes back, but they should uh, they should go on more dates. Yeah, I like how everyone's just so nice on the show, and they fight about how nice they are except for Fleischman because he's like kind of a jerk but then he's nice again I don't know whatever I, I like I said I, I'm coming into this not remembering a damn thing about the show besides him being in a fish with Hesh from uh, Sopranos I don't even remember which character that was I think it was Fleischman yeah whatever this has gone on for way longer than you think it should so just pick out the spots that you need to I just kept rambling because I wasn't sure if anything was good or not it's not supposed to be good, though. It's just thoughts. Whatever. Go ahead. All right. Thank you guys for having me. Enjoy picking through this shit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Those were Anthony's thoughts on today's episode. And uh, for this part, Charles is out of the office. So it's just going to be me reviewing, uh, recounting Anthony's thoughts here. I said already that Anthony was a guest at my birthday and saw the last episode, which he remarked was a little too supernatural for him. Maybe it has to do with uh, being forced to watch a TV show that you've never seen before at a party setting. And so a lot of it, you know, he said he didn't remember a lot of it or he wasn't necessarily focusing correctly, perhaps, or, or the same as when he watched this episode. So that's my bad, putting him in that situation. But um, but he did prefer this episode more, which I think is interesting. 
he commented on the writing, the sort of the lots of jargon that is used by, I guess, Maurice talking about the orchids, Joel talking about Zolinger Ellison, and also about how this show uses humor uh, amidst some dramatic elements as well, maybe relating that a bit to David Chase's Sopranos in a way. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just like, uh, you know, that sort of um, prestige television. I guess this was before prestige television, but Sopranos, I think, would would go on to sort of maybe spearhead that in a way. Uh, so similar, similar vibes, I guess, in that prestige landscape there. Anthony says he really enjoyed the end of the episode. At that point, he really, um, he says he finally understood the humor, uh, specifically the relationship between Joel and Pete, the two doctors who, I like how he said, like, they should go on more dates. I like these guys together. Uh, I did, when we were talking, Charles, I was like, you know, what if Pete comes back? Like, I would totally believe that Pete is a friend character that would return. Uh, of course, he doesn't. I, I checked the IMDb listing, at least according to IMDb, that actor doesn't return to Northern Exposure. But I mean, just taking this episode alone, uh, you know, I would totally believe that this is a could be a recurring character. Like this, they set it up pretty well here. Anthony says Shelley is insane, and yeah, I think a lot of that uh, <laughs> that plot line where Maurice is staying with Shelley and Halling. It just feels, it's supposed to feel quite uncomfortable, I think, for Maurice. Uh, they really sell it with, uh, with Shelly's uh, pillow covers and they're kind of doting over him, like watching over Maurice as he's just kind of tucked into bed. Anthony is a big fan of Barry Corbin. I think he points out Barry Corbin is in um, No Country for Old Men. He's in like the very last scene of that, at least. And I got to say, Anthony, uh, Barry Corbin's character, Maurice, does have some of my favorite storylines in the series. Like you wouldn't be miss, uh, you would you would be like you'd be seeing a lot of great television if you if you just watched his storylines alone. But uh, I don't know if it was obvious in this episode. He is a bigoted character, and he's sort of um, you know he kind of butts heads with a lot of the other more progressive characters. Um, you know in this in this series but usually um since everyone is good friends you know they all come around and and uh, can see can see the world through each other's eyes i guess they can all kind of agree in the end uh, but yeah i actually i think i've mentioned this before upon my rewatch i i i used to always um be annoyed by maurice and i guess i can still be annoyed by maurice for sure but um, some of his storylines are some really good ones. There's some really great Maurice storylines. I was surprised by that uh, on my rewatch. Uh, Chris's storyline in this episode, Anthony points out, didn't really wrap up as well as the other two storylines. And I think you're right. I mean, we talked about this, Charles. Um, it ends almost as a more of a question than an answer. And I was thinking about that. I think a lot of Northern Exposure can be like that, where it just poses a lot of questions. Um, but this is this storyline does stand out because I think the ending specifically is just a big question mark. And we kind of talked about that in our analysis. Um, and, and, you know, at the very least, this is... Um, this is an interesting idea to bring up the synchronicity, the question of it all. There is not really an answer provided by the end of that storyline, uh, which is interesting, I guess. The last thing I want to mention about Anthony's commentary here, his thoughts, uh, he says, everyone's so nice on this show and they fight about how nice they are. I think that's true. A lot of, um, <laughs> a lot of listeners or a lot of uh, first-time watchers will point out how just 
idealistic and how nice uh, the community is here. And I think it's very interesting now that we have a plot line between like Maurice and Holling where they're trying to be almost like too um, accommodating to each other. And Maurice is even saying like, I think Charles, you you use the word like Maurice thinks Holling is weaponizing his kindness uh, to like, you know, to further indebt Maurice to him. So yeah, th- we're, we've come to a point here where the the kindness and generosity uh, is actually becoming a conflict between these two characters, at least. Well, thanks, Anthony, for taking the time to watch that episode and provide your thoughts. Thanks for coming to my birthday and watching that last episode too, Fish Story. Uh, I'm glad you got to see like two back to back. That's pretty cool. Uh, but thanks again for, for doing that and uh, really enjoyed uh, listening to your thoughts. Charles, for next week, we're going to return with an episode called A Wing and a Prayer. I'll let you think on that and uh, see if you have any um, predictions. All right, Charles, see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork, and thanks to Anthony for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.